All right, we're in, we're in Genesis, we're in chapter 2, we'll start in verse 4, and I'll read through verse 17. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Hivalah, and there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded this man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die." The word of the Lord. So here we've been in Genesis. Uh, we've been through all of Genesis 1, the first few verses of Genesis 2. And we see here in 2, starting in verse 4, all the way to the end of the chapter that we'll get through next week, is really just a, a second reading of the creation account. It's a, it's a different way of looking at it. Uh, the, the, the first reading in chapter 1 is, as a poem, it has this repetition where it says, And God said, let there be, and then whatever he created, there was. And then it says, and there was, whatever God created. And at the end it says, and it was good. Same thing after every, the first five days. There's this repetition because it's a poem. Well, here in Genesis 2, we have something very different. It's prose. And some people look at the two and they compare them to one another, and they find the contradictions. But I would like for us to put them together so that we might see how they complement one another, how they provide for us a fuller view of what creation really was all about. It's kind of like the Gospels. You have the four Gospels. They're different. When you put them together, you have the fullest vision of who Jesus actually was. Well, we can do that here in Genesis 1 and 2 as well. But in chapter 1, you, you have this... Oh, th th this, this uh, uh, movement towards day six where the pinnacle of creation, the image of God, mankind is created. There's momentum that's being built towards day six. But in Genesis 2, it's very different. What it has is it has everything is spelled out in its relation to man. So you have three relationships. You see man's relationship with creation, man's relationship to his God, man's relationship to one another. The one with creation is, is verses 4 to 15. 
Relationship with God is verses 16 and 17, and next week the relationship with one another is verses 18 to 25. And at the end of the day, if you really think about all of our lives, our lives really are all about relationships, aren't they? I mean, Jesus says as much when he is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he replies with love God and love one another. You might say, well, Marshall, creation's not there. God didn't say, uh, Jesus didn't say love God, love one another, and love creation. But if you think about how do you love God, one of the ways you love God is by enjoying his creation and stewarding it. Think about mankind to love people. They are God's creation. So by loving people, you are loving part of God's creation. So they're all three of these relationships are kind of wrapped up in one another. And it sounds really simple if that's what life is really about, doesn't it? But if it was so simple, why is life so daggum hard? Well, I think there's lots of answers to that question, but I think one is to consider that we as modern people, we feel the pressure to create an identity for ourselves. You and I, we feel the need to make our life interesting and meaningful and impactful. And not only do we have to create that kind of life, then you have to have it affirmed so that you can hold on to that identity for yourself. If that rings a bell, might that explain your anxiety? Might that explain your instability? Because to me, if that's your view of life, it sounds exhausting. It sounds like a lot of pressure. But here's the good news. There's an alternative to creating an identity for yourself. The alternative, instead of creating it, you receive it. You receive it from your creator. You allow him to tell you who you are and what your life is to be all about. And what he tells us here in Genesis 1 and 2 is that our life is all about relationships. So let's look at the first one, a relationship with creation. Look at verse 15. Verse 15 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, this is a part of the story before the fall. This is before sin has entered the world. And here you have Adam and Eve who work the garden and they keep it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about life without sin, I think about 52 weeks of vacation and zero weeks of working, don't you? I mean, to me, that sounds like paradise. And if you're like me, you likely view work as a result of the fall. You see it as a result of sin, but it's just not true. We were created to work and keep the garden. And Genesis 1 says the same thing of mankind when we're told that they were made in God's image to have dominion over all of creation. And of course they're made to have dominion because they're made in God's image and that's what God does. He has dominion of all things. So here's a good definition of work, of image-bearing work. It's this. It's to rearrange the raw material of a given domain for the flourishing of everyone. It's to rearrange the raw material of a given domain for the flourishing of everyone. Let me give you a couple examples. Let's just take music. Music is taking the raw material of sound and then reforming it so that when we hear it, it brings meaning to our lives. Music is taking the raw material of sound and reforming it so that when we hear it, it brings meaning to our lives. 
Just one example. Here's another. Let's do architecture. Architecture is taking steel, concrete, and wood from the earth to build a building to shelter mankind. So take whatever your job is, find out what the raw materials are of your given domain, and what might it look like to rearrange those, that's our work, so that the output, so that the goal is the flourishing of everyone. Well, that's gospel work. See, Adam and Eve, look at what they're given. I mean, they have exquisite materials that have been given them. In verse 9, it says that every tree was pleasant to the sight and good for food. Verse 10 says that they have an abundant water source. Verses 11 and 12 highlight these natural resources, gold, bdellium, and onyx. So what are your raw materials? How might you rearrange them? And what might human flourishing look like because of it? See, you are given something to do by God. So that means that work is not a necessary drudgery to be practiced so that you can make some money. Nope. Work is at the core of what it means to be human. Work is not something we do to live, but it's the one thing, it's the thing that one lives to do. Work is not something we do to live, but the thing one lives to do. See, work is our friend, it's not our enemy. It's where you can find deep satisfaction. One of my favorite quotes on work is from a a poet, a novelist, a British poet and novelist uh, from the last century, Dorothy Sayers. And here's what she says right after World War II in a lecture. She says this, The habit of thinking of work is to think of it as something that someone does to make money or to get a place in society. So often, people become doctors not because they long to relieve suffering, but because they want to bring themselves and their families up in the world. So often, people become lawyers not because of a desire for justice, but to make money and gain status. See, one of the great surprises that military people found in World War II was how happy they were. Because what made them happy themselves was to do something not because of money or because of status, but because everyone was doing it. And it was for something that needed to be done. See, work is the gracious expression of creative energy in the service of others. End quote. See, I mean, think about Adam and Eve. They woke up every Monday morning and said, I can't wait to go to work. They went to bed every Monday night, Monday night, and they thought, what a privilege it was for me to work this day. See, brother and sister, work is your friend. Work is not something you get through so that you can leisure. No, your leisure is something you do for refreshment so that you can get back to the delight of your work. Now, I know this might sound really strange <laughs> to a lot of you. Uh, a lot of you as Christians, you, you think the whole point of our work is to make money so that you can give some to the church. You think the whole point of your work is to simply build relationships so you can do evangelism at work. You think you have this low-key feeling that your work is not as important as those who do Christian ministry. 
you just think, I'll do as little as possible at work so that I can do as much as possible at the church. But this is all baloney. See, work is an end in and of itself. Now, many of you, because we're a little bit younger crowd for most of us, you might be sitting there thinking, well, this all sounds good, Marsh, but how do I know exactly what job I should take? What should I be doing? Or maybe if you're not younger, maybe you're just at this new season post-COVID and it's allowed you to rethink about how you want to spend the next season of your life. Or maybe you're looking into retirement and you're thinking, what am I going to do? See, this isn't just what is my profession going to be? What is my career going to be? This is about what we do routinely week in and week out. And that might change several times over the course of a lifetime. Maybe this hits you afresh this morning. But I think one way you think about what you should do, what job you should take, is to look at the intersection of three things. What you're good at, what you enjoy, and what the world needs. What you're good at, what you enjoy, and what the world needs. See, if you do something you're good at and that you enjoy, but the world doesn't need it, then you're unemployed. I mean, think about it. I, I love watching UK football, and I, I can't wait to watch the Bengals today. I think they've got a chance this afternoon. And I, I, not only do I enjoy it, I think I'm really good at watching them play. I think I'm a great fan. But the world doesn't need me to be a fan, and that's why I don't have a job doing it. Or think about it this way. If you do something that you're good at and that the world needs, but you don't enjoy it, you'll die on the inside. You'll burn out. If you do something you enjoy and you do something the world needs, but you're not any good at it, you might get hired, but you're not going to keep a job. But let me give you a disclaimer. If you put these three aspects on top of one another, you're never going to have perfect layover. You're not going to have perfect layover because you live in a fallen world. But take a deep breath. It's not your job to have maximum impact with your job. It's Jesus' job to redeem the earth. He's just allowing you to have a square inch to steward. So don't feel the pressure to craft some great story. Just shoot for a normal, ordinary life of stewarding your square inch of creation. So that's a relationship with creation. Might, might lead to lots of questions for you. That's good. You can wrestle with God about them. But I'm done. All right. Now we're going to talk about relationship with God. In Genesis 1 and 2 what you'll see is that human beings are totally dependent on God. We are the creatures and he is the creator. Our existence is completely contingent on him. He's the one who formed us from the dust of the ground and breathed into us. But he doesn't leave us without any idea of how to interact with him. Just look at Adam. I mean, Adam, he just had to look around and be like, whoa, this is incredible. There's beauty everywhere. Possibilities are endless. Variety right here. And, and I bet you he thought, I, I can't believe my job is to cultivate this through my own work and by being fruitful and multiplying so there might be more image bearers who can help me cultivate all of this. I think that was part of what it looked like for him to be in a relationship with God was this awe of the responsibility he was given. See, these were his marching orders. He was excited about them. 
But as we saw in verses 16 and 17, it's conditional on his obedience. See, in verses 16 and 17, you'll see that he's told that he can eat from any tree. He has a lot of leeway. But there's one he can't eat from. And if he were to eat from this tree, it means certain death. And what we find out, this death isn't physical death. This death isn't annihilation. But this death will be one where he's separated from God. He's alienated from God. He's alienated from his perfect parent. I mean, just think about what God has been like with Adam up to this point. Think about how deliberate he's been in bringing Adam about. Adam knows he's not an accident. He knows that God who got his hands dirty and he picked up some dust and he blew into it and there he came to be. Again, a sense of awe. And throughout the narrative, you see God's tenderness. He doesn't smother Adam here. He just shelters him. God's planted discoveries and encounters throughout this world that he has made. God's made it possible to have immense physical pleasure. He's given him food that was good to eat. He gives him a sexuality that he can enjoy. And what God has done for Adam is that God has created a temple for Adam in Eden. He's given him a place where he can commune with his creator. And so if he's going to be disconnected from God, it's going to be an utter tragedy. So this tree, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that's, that, that, that it offers Adam an alternative discipleship. Adam can trade his meaningful labor for a painful grind. He could trade in ideal working conditions with an abundant water source, lush trees, and stunning precious metals for thistles and thorns. Adam could gaze at rich, productive, lavish, blissful beauty, or he could be cast from it all. He could trade in communion with God in this perfect state to separation. He could trade in his delight for work, for toil. He could go from having a very clear purpose about the direction of his life, or he could wonder about an aimlessness. Well, he chooses the latter. But as we see, as we continue to read the scriptures, the scriptures don't end in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. They go forward. God has mercy on mankind. God doesn't strike Adam and Eve dead right there on the spot in the garden. He does cast them out of the garden, but he doesn't abandon them. In fact, what God does is he's present with them and he gives them visions of dwelling with them. He wants to give them a land and build a city of Jerusalem that will be in some ways a foretaste of what Eden used to be like and what's coming ahead. And then when we get the New Testament... We see in Hebrews 11 that we're told to be looking forward to a city whose builder and designer is God. We're told in Hebrews 13 that we have no lasting city on this earth, but we await a city that is to come. In Revelation 21, there's this description of a city that's coming that will be full of gold. Sounds like Eden, doesn't it? This city in Revelation 21 that's described has the precise measurements that mirror the measurements from the temple where God dwelled with his people in the Old Testament. 
In Revelation 22 that we read earlier, it describes a city where there is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's not an alternative to discipleship. The only tree that exists is the tree of life, and it produces leaves that will be for the healing of the nations. So you see, we stand between the Garden of Eden on one side and the city of God on the other. Here we are right square in the middle, and we are in exile. We don't have a home, but a home in a city awaits us. It's a home we don't deserve. It's a home that's been purchased by the blood of Jesus, who succeeded where Adam and we too have failed. It's a city where Jesus dwells. He's the one who followed the marching orders to a T. He's the one who didn't choose the alternative path of discipleship. He's the one who conquered where we defeated. He's the one who's the perfect Adam. And that leaves me and you with a choice. Which Adam are we going to stand with today? Are we going to stand with the Adam that wants independence from God? Are we going to stand with the Adam where we have to create our own identity and then keep it up by having it affirmed? Or are we going to receive our identity from the second Adam? The true image of God. And stand under him where we won't be alienated from our loving Father. We stand under Him and we know that our work will, on this side of heaven, be characterized with frustration, but we will have purpose because we have a vision of a city that is to come. And I hope this morning that you will choose to stand under the second Adam and not the first. Maybe that's a choice you'll make for the thousandth time this morning or maybe for the first. Let's pray. Father, we deserve to be abandoned a long, long, long time ago. But you have pursued us. And Lord, I pray that we would surrender. Lord, that we would give up and see the independence in the end is not good for us. But what we need is dependence wholly on you. Oh, Lord, help us in this journey. In Christ's name, amen.